Steve Price. Steve Price. Hey, Steve. Hey. Shock jock Steve Price. I don't like shock jock, by the way. I think um, Price is 100% right. Well, Steve joins us now. Ross Greenwood is Australia's best-known finance commentator, famous for his no-nonsense approach in explaining how the wheels of business actually tick. In this episode of On The Record, Ross tells us how he went from being a Victorian country kid to owning a business magazine in the financial capital of the world, London. If the great hopes now being pinned on prospective coronavirus vaccine trials end up being more disappointing than now hoped by bureaucrats and the community, let's hope I'm wrong and that these vaccine trials actually are the thing we need to reopen our economies and to allow us to travel again. Now, best known recently, of course, for his TV work, television work on Network 9, on the Today Show, National 9 News, 60 Minutes. Many of us woke up for many years to the Today Show and Ross's Money Minute. But Ross, who I should declare up front is a very long-standing and trusted friend of mine, is, I think, much more than a financial commentator. He's a person with a global view who has worked around the world and who sees himself as a global person. Ross, welcome to On The Record. Thank you, Steve. This is an unusual thing, you and I having a chat like this, isn't it? It is very unusual because we normally speak uh, pretty much every day and we know each other very well, but I'm going to find some things out about you today. I hope that uh, perhaps a lot of the people listening to this podcast weren't aware of. And I want to start, you're a country Victorian boy, you're born in Wangaratta in Victoria's northeast, and you end up... No, 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 I'll pick you up even before we start. Oh, you were born born in in Melbourne. I was born in Melbourne and my family, my father, who strangely started out uh, as a copy boy on the, uh, on the Melbourne uh, Sun, the Sun newspaper. So he seemed destined for a, for a career in, in newspapers as a journalist. Suddenly turned his back because he got a pay rise to become an insurance representative. And so he went and did his insurance exams and went and became an insurance man and took the whole family to the, to the country when I was aged five. And so though I was born in, uh, in, in Melbourne at a very young age, uh, at just five, and I remember my first day at school literally standing in the middle of this, um, you know, very uh, austere uh, primary school in the middle of, uh, middle of the country, Victoria, um, and, and having no idea where I was, I've got to tell you. So it was a bit of a culture shock as a five-year-old to be taken out of the city and into the, into the bush, but it was clearly, from the family's point of view, one of the very best things he could have done because... Uh, you just look at people who somehow know no boundaries. They often do come from overseas or they come from, uh, from, from the rural settings. Uh, and it's largely because you've got to deal with everybody in those rural communities. Imagine how the life might have turned out differently if Dad had gone on from being a copy boy to editing the Melbourne Sun. Your life might have been completely different. I was going to make the that's point. I could be working in insurance right now. As a matter of fact, that's probably what I would be doing. <laughs> that wouldn't have been a lot of fun. But you, you come from. I mean, you grow up in country Victoria, pretty, uh, very, very uh, beautiful place to grow up in. Not much stress, and you end up, uh, and not a lot of people might know this. You end up owning a finance magazine and appearing regularly on the BBC, Sky News, CNN, Bloomberg, in the financial capital of the world in London. You must have been pinching yourself. Regularly, and in fact, I, I can remember one night, and I, I rang as many people as I could back in Australia. So this, you know, is fast forwarding on some thirty years from having left Wangaratta, um, and having sort of gone on and then had a, a reasonable career uh, in magazines and newspapers here in Australia. Then to have set up a, a magazine in London, uh, and to have found yourself at the Lord Mayor's 
annual uh, dinner. Um, and, and that was, you know, sort of right in the heart of London. And, and this incredible thing where there's a fanfare and cross swords with, uh, uh, with, the, with the guards, the beef eaters, you know, sort of piping you in and your name announced at the top of, you know, sort of these incredible steps down into the... It was just the most astonishing theory. Uh, you know, and just to imagine it yourself as a kid from the country um, in these types of circumstances is really quite something. We'll go into the race at Ascot, you know, and there's the queen in the box alongside you. So all of these types of experiences all the way along, you never, ever forgot where you came from. I thought that was pretty important. But you could never, ever stop, you know, understanding just how cool the experiences were that you were having at that point in time. And how you could never take them for granted because, you know, these were things that were fairly unique opportunities. But you had to get excited. Every time something like that happened, you'd have to stop and just almost have a laugh at yourself and go, wow, this is pretty amazing. It really is quite incredible. I'm going to come back to your view of London and whether it's still the global financial capital of the world and how it operates these days in the middle of COVID a little bit later. But you're working as a finance expert in the capital of global finance. Did it... Do you think it helped or hindered the fact you were Australian, had an Australian accent and were there pretty much wise, eyes wide open? Well, a couple of things happened there. It was broadly a hindrance to have an Australian accent. Really? Because there are all sorts of media at that time that preferred people not to have that broad Australian accent. And, you know, <laughs> I've got a fairly broad accent. But it, but it didn't sort of really pull me up in many ways because – in most places I'd go to, CNN or the BBC or Sky, there'd generally be an Australian there who'd know who I was or what I'd done. And they'd generally turn around and go, this guy's all right, he knows what he's doing sort of thing. And so the Aussie mafia, to a certain extent, got you into all sorts of places that you might not otherwise have got to. And it was very funny. I remember that there was a, a new television program that they were setting up at the BBC over there. And I'd been approached to go and you know be a part of this television program. And uh, it was funny, I said to the producer, isn't my accent, my Australian accent, going to be a problem? And he said, well, he said, no, because in this country, everybody has an accent. And everybody knows specifically, and this is not something that you, probably you recognise, there's a, 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 an accent from Yorkshire, or an accent from Newcastle, or from Scotland, or something like that, but even down to the areas of London that people come from. And they would recognise these accents instantly. And so he basically said to me, he said, look, nah, he said, you're absolutely fine. He said, because you don't have a northern accent, which a person from the south would absolutely hate. You don't have a southern accent, which a person from the north would instantly hate. So the fact that you've got, you know, a different accent doesn't really offend anybody or it offends everybody. It's one of the two. And so in in actual uh, fact, with some people, they actually saw it as being a bit of an advantage because... They clearly at the time were going to try and pitch to all of the British demographic and not just a certain part of it. We're talking about a time, you know, a time that was well after when Rupert Murdoch went there and, and went through the place buying the Sun and, and eventually taking over the London Times. Uh, did the fact that you were an Aussie colonial count against you in any way, given that Rupert wasn't always the most popular person in London? No. In fact, uh, it, by that time it was pretty much established that Aussies could come and go through there. Strangely, though, what you actually mentioned about whether there's any resistance towards you, the only place I reckon I've ever encountered active, well, racial prejudice for being an Australian <laughs> is in New Zealand. Because I went and set up a magazine in New Zealand in the late 1980s. Um, and it was there where they basically 
you know, came and said to you, well, you're an Australian, you're clearly not here to represent our interests. And it was very interesting because I was literally a one-man band sitting up in magazines um, in those days and, you know, I'd hired the people, put the people around me. And I can remember that another magazine, we had a rival magazine being set up by some local entrepreneurs and, and a television camera turned up first day to say, what's it like to be part of a huge Australian multinational conglomerate trying to wipe out some honest New Zealand entrepreneurs? And I've gone, um, I'm the only one here. <laughs> so it's very interesting to note the different attitudes you had. But I didn't encounter that so much in the UK, if anything, to be honest, you know, I found a place where every day you woke, this is something we don't appreciate in Australia. In Australia, we're a land of the wonderful duopolies. Until recently, of course, until it went broke, um, you know, it was Virgin and Qantas. It was Coles and Woolworths. You Holden know, it and was Ford. literally, yeah, Holden and Ford. All of these great duopolies that took place. Now, when you're in media here, it's generally, it's Channel 9, Channel 7, Channel 10's there as well, of course importantly, but the, the thing is there's not very many players in the field. If you go to the UK, there's so much competition. And so the one thing that I can remember, and it's something I brought back to Australia with me, every day you get up, you have to compete for your very survival. And being obviously as we were in the UK, when we set the magazine and internet businesses up, we were just a really tiny player, literally with our own money. And so you had to get up and fight harder than anybody else. If that meant you were up at 5.30 in the morning to go to the Sky Studios or the BBC Studios or whatever it was to promote your magazine, to get your, to get the name of your magazine out there, to get yourself out there, well, that's what you had to do because if you didn't do it, somebody else would have been doing it and as a result, they would have been getting a leg up on you. And so, you know, th- that ability to compete and to be willing to compete, I think is, you know, really one of the, the, the great assets in many ways and probably, if you go all the way back, you learnt that on the sporting fields of Wangaratta as a kid, where effectively you were, you were literally fighting every, every week for your survival. Um, and that's where, in many ways, um, the kids learnt to compete yeah. on those sporting fields. Well, I came out of Adelaide, you came out of Wangaratta. Adelaide's not much bigger than Wangaratta in, in truth, a little bit bigger, but not a lot bigger. And when, what you did is you fought to get out of those places because you knew in the big city there'd be much more opportunity. And what you're talking about there is the ultimate leap from a little country like Australia to the middle of Europe. That's right. And, but, you, but you've got to remember those lessons, especially when you come back to a place like Australia, that you do actually have to, again, have that willingness to work, have that willingness to compete. Because this is the reason, I think, why so many people from overseas come to Australia, they have fresh eyes, they see things that maybe we don't see and that we take for granted. And so they spot opportunities. And because they're new, because they don't come with any baggage, they don't have any labels on them as to where they went to school or who their friends are or who they married, they come in and they are able to cut through in a way that many Australians are not able to cut through, simply because you know we've literally got the baggage of being in the one place for a long time. And I think this is really, again, one of the great lessons that if you are trying to take a step ahead, that in some ways, often, you've got to take a step either sideways or take a step away to really get some perspective of, you know, sort of that fresh pair of eyes to actually see things differently. And as a result, then to be able to go and find niches, to be able to go and compete. I'm going to talk to you a little bit later about some of the great migrant success stories that you've known and reported on. But let's go back a bit. You Did you, when you started out, 
uh, working as a reporter, did you set out to become a finance expert? Because knowing you as well as I do, I would have thought sport might have been your choice. I mean, surely your dream job uh, would have been reporting on the Australian cricket team and travelling around the world when they played test cricket. Yes, it would have been. That would have been absolutely <laughs> what I set out to Well, what 100%, happened? 100%, that's what I set out to be. All right, so there's a few things that happened along the way that meant that that wasn't going to happen. So the very first of these was I started out, just to explain to people, uh, as a copy boy, as you did in those days, on, the, on the Melbourne Truth. So I basically... Melbourne Truth? That of, was full of naked women and columns about sex. You were going to say tits and bums, and it was. Yes, it's exactly <laughs> right. So it was... It was renowned. What a great for read it was! It. it really was. It was quite incredible. The old heart farm column oh. and the characters that worked on it. In fact, one of the great characters that you know people, especially around um, VFL AFL, will know is Jack Dyer. For goodness' sakes, one of the great heroes of my childhood and my parents and grandparents, the former captain, Captain Blood from Richmond during its glory days, um, was still there and would turn up every day. So you can imagine there's a 17-year-old kid. You know, what, he in, turned up every day? He wasn't just writing a column and, and sending it in no, by he letter. Up, he turned up pretty much every day. He, he was just there and thereabouts the whole time. There were some astonishing old characters there. Anyway, so the, this was the, your first taste of being able to get into the media. My very first day as a copy boy, I can remember the old chief of staff, Frank Quill, came and, you know, cigarette in, his, in the corner of his mouth and said, son, come over here. He said, uh, I need you to do something. I need you to go around to the local gym. There's a boxing match on this Saturday. I said, yeah. He said, uh, what I want you to do, he said, I want you to sneak around to the gym. I want you to pinch the poster off the front of the gym because it's got the photograph of the two boxes that we need for the paper. I've said, right. I said, what happens if I get caught? He said, son, if you get caught, you don't work for us anymore. And by the way, they'll beat the crap out of you. And I, sat, I must admit that I sat there, I did it. I actually pinched the poster, got it into the paper, and you know, pretty much you understood that you were on your wit's end if you wanted to go and survive in media. And you know, this was this was the way in which it, it, it worked. I kind of guess, but the step from that was to the Australian. So let's go to that part of it, because the ambition was obviously to be a sports reporter. Um, that's where my whole background. Cricket was. or I AFL didn't matter. No, it would have been either, um, but I, I guess it would have been cricket. Now, the issue of this was that I did uh, police rounds and did sport and reported on AFL and did all those types of things, you know, pretty poorly, I would have thought, in those days. Anyway, so there was a day, and I was still playing cricket, so I was playing sort of in the, in the, in the lower grades in uh, district cricket for Paran in those days. Anyway, so what happens one day, I've had a massive Saturday night, I'm supposed to be reporting on the one-day cricket the following day from the MCG. I wake up as sick as a dog. And so I suddenly realised that the cricket's about to start. I turn the television on. I'm still in no shape to even get off the couch. The only thing that I missed out in this whole thing about while trying to report the cricket from the television, lying on a couch in my home, was that the cricket's broadcast actually finished at midday because of the local rules about them trying to get a crowd to the cricket. And so I had to take my terrible hangover and my terrible self off to the cricket where I sat there like a very sorry, sorry self in the afternoon. Did a terrible report, and that was the end of my cricket reporting days. I reckon one of the worst jobs I've ever had in reporting uh, involved cricket. And on a Saturday, working for the Sunday Mail, uh, this is a Rupert Murdoch paper in Adelaide where you started work at 7am and finished at midnight and got paid about $5. 
uh, I had to go and report on district cricket. Now, you know me. I'm not a huge cricket fan like you. I sort of have a, a yep. vague interest in it, but I'm not, a, I'm not passionate or obsessive about it. So there you are. You get sent to the Salisbury Cricket Ground, about 20 kilometres north of Adelaide in summer, where it's about 48 degrees in the shade, and you have to sit in the press box and mark the scorer's card with the scorer for six hours. I figured at some point there, this is just not for me. I can't do this. So it is very funny. At around about the same time that my cricket writing career came to a screeching halt as a result of a monumental hangover that I'd had at my failure to base the report on the one-day cricket, um, what happens is I take note of the newsroom and I observe everybody in the newsroom and I note the finance department that they seem to be pretty relaxed in the finance department. But I do note they get their name in the paper every day. So I note a few things about them. They go to lunch every day. Um, they, they seem to uh, get their name in the paper every day. They went to the races on Wednesday afternoon. Um, and, and they were out in the pub every night. And I sat there and thought, that's like the sort of job I should go and do. So I went down there. And I've got to say that times changed pretty quickly. They stopped going to the races. They still went to the pub every day. But uh, I, I've got to tell you that it was one of those things, and I can't quite explain it to you, but I went down there with no real economic background. I might have done it in year year 11 or something like that, economics. But I just got it almost instantly. I, I just understood it, uh, and I understood the way the stock market worked, and I understood the way in which markets work and businesses, you learnt. And so from that point of view, you did get your name in the paper every day, um, and, and really it opened up a, a whole new avenue because in those days, this is, we're talking early 1980s, um, it wasn't cool to be a finance journalist, it was cool to be a sports reporter or maybe a political reporter. The finance desk was really sort of important to the bosses but wasn't terribly important to anybody else. But it was just something that I understood and that was the key to getting involved at at very early stages. Yeah, it's funny you say that because uh, I didn't work in finance but I always worked with a finance department at the newspaper and they always seem to have a better relationship with the editor and the board of directors than anyone else. The board of directors and the editor didn't really want to know about your, your general reporter, your grubby blokes who were out reporting on murders, but they wanted to get some share tips from the people in finance. That's it. No, they were the days. And, uh, and, of course, you know, incredible, just like any uh, reporting team, there'd be big characters, enormous characters that would be in there. You know, and a few of them, there was a bloke called Jim Walker, who was one of the all-time greats. He'd come from Perth. Um, Ian Perkin was another one. Don Kirkwood. These types of names, you know, were, were were pretty large in their time, but they were also big, big characters in their own way. And they're influential, especially as you're a young fellow in your early twenties now. Um, and, and they have they have the biggest impact on on your on your attitudes to life, um, but also the way in which you go about reporting, because they were pretty stern taskmasters. And so, as it turned out, I mean. Most of the finance department at the Australian left. Um, and for a period of time, here I was at the age of 20 or something like that, um, effectively running the, the Melbourne Finance Bureau for the Australian, mainly because I was the only one there. Um, and so it was uh, kind of a baptism of fire in many ways that you suddenly had to learn quickly and you had to be able to uh, understand who it was out in the community that you could trust and go to to get the information. And unlike these days where we have a virtual uh, stock market floor on the stock market itself, those days there was a real stock market floor, that seemed to me always to be a, a most fascinating place with people shouting and screaming and waving and, and doing things that no one could understand. 
Isn't it funny? You, you think about it these days, something like that that is so long gone for electronic trading. Uh, and, and yet here it was, the characters there were larger than life. And, you know, of course, you can imagine the skullduggery being got up to in those days when it was the open cry system, as they called it. And so, yeah, you, you know, you're a part of it. In fact, I can remember in the 1987 share crash that led to Australia's last big recession before the one that we're in now, standing on the floor you know, of, of the stock exchange in Melbourne and really wondering if the world you know, was going to end effectively is that we're headed for another deep depression. And I kind of guess in some ways it's not dissimilar to some of the things that we're all thinking about now with coronavirus and just what that does to our economy, what that does to our life and our standards of living. But those thoughts were there in 1987, and just standing there and just watching carnage and watching, you know, harrowed faces as fortunes were being lost and as the pressure was building on these people. And it really is sort of instrumental because you've got to watch the people, just not watch the process. You've actually got to physically watch the people during these these times. Uh, and it was interesting just to see see that. But by this time, I, I should explain that I've already gone through another change in, in my career and probably the most important one or the biggest of all. And that is a bloke called Bob Gottliebson, who, you know, of course, was the, the great shot of clear columnist for the Financial Review, set up Business Review Weekly in Australia and all sorts of other magazines as well. And, and today, still writing for the Australian newspaper um, into his 80s uh, now, Bob is. But the fact of the matter is that Bob sort of took a whole bunch of young journalists and became their mentor. Um, and he certainly did that for me. Um, it took me like he did with others, like uh, people like Ivor Reese, um, Ali Cromie, David Kosh was another one that was there in those days as well. Um, uh, later on, there was Adele Ferguson, who's a uh, multi-gold Walkley winning uh, journalist. So you know, there's a range of people that he took under his, uh, under his wing and showed them how to be proper finance journalists. In his own mad eccentric way that he's got, um, you know, he's still a very dear friend but he was one of the sharpest minds in regards to understanding, you know, the corporate world of Australia, the economics of Australia, and then how to communicate that. And that was one of the things that so many people learned from him. Yeah, and he also turned Business Review Weekly magazine, which you, of course, were on uh, into such a, a profitable centre for, for its owners. So you go to Personal Investment Magazine, you go to BRW, but you, you end up uh, on television on a program called Healthy, Wealthy and Wise. Now, this is created by another eccentric Australian in Gavin Disney, but am I right to suggest that that show might really have been one of the first ever lifestyle TV shows in Australia? It probably was. It was coming out at around about the same time that maybe Burke's Backyard was happening and then Nine seeing the success of Healthy, Wealthy and Wise, um, which was on the 10 network, uh, and Gavin Disney, of course, was the uh, co-creator of uh, not only Hey Hey It's Saturday with Daryl Summers, but also of New Faces as well with mm. Bert Newton. So he, he did have a great television view. And I, I can remember one of the great things when he was actually sort of casting for Healthy, Wealthy and Wise, and I was sitting having lunch with him one day, and he basically had a whole range of photographs out in front of him of, of the family he was trying to create. It was really interesting, this. So effectively, everybody sort of had to fit the mould of being a part of a family. And if you think of even, you know, sort of breakfast television these days, they're constantly, you know, either for, for right or wrong, trying to create a family. And everybody's got to fit into the mould of somebody in the family. It might be it's 
might be the you're the slightly crazy uncle, or you're the dad, or you're the mum, or you know you're the you're, you're the wacky young brother, or something like that. So there's always the role that everybody had to play. But the interesting part about that is it sort of came along is that the Nine Network also recognised um, the success of Healthy, Wealthy and Wise and literally chopped it up into bits. And so it created the, the money program. It created Getaway at the same time. So a, a range of different programs were spun out of the back of what Healthy, Wealthy and Wise was doing um, that Nine really took on and made a lot of money and a lot of success out of as well. But, you know, it was interesting on your feet because... For the very first time, you suddenly realised you had to not just perform in front of, um, you know, a, a live audience if you were giving a speech or a seminar or something like this. You had to be prepared to actually, you know, act in front of the public when you were trying to do a piece to camera. And you know, you, sometimes when you started, you'd be terrible at it. And the humiliation of people looking at you going, mate, you're not very good at this, are you? Was, <laughs> was, was really quite interesting. Because, you know, obviously as you did more of it. and So you, you had done, you'd done no TV when you started there? Oh, no, I'd done bits, strangely. So one of my very good friends, Kerry Ann Kenley, uh, who's a great mate of mine and uh, still is to this very day. Um, already she appeared. Had, she's already appeared on this podcast, Kerry Ann. You've only got legends on this podcast, Correct. quite clearly, Price. Yes. There's no doubt about that. Anyway, so, um, no, but she is a legend, a genuine legend. And Kerry Ann, and uh, I'd been doing stuff on Good Morning Australia with Kerry Ann, and I'd gone and hosted in the absence of. Um, uh, of Gibbo at those days. Um, Gordon Elliott. I'd gone out but, um, Gordon Elliott was early. She didn't like Gordon Elliott between you and me, but that's, uh, that's a different <laughs> she story. Told I think me she would have explained it to you. Yes, she did. Yes. Anyway, so um, the funny part about it was that uh, I'd gone and hosted Good Morning Australia with Kerry Ann for about, oh, I can't remember, two or three weeks over a Christmas period, which I've got to say was a genuine fear factor of going in and having to front a national television program. But again, what age was I? Probably 28 at the time or something of that nature. But it was a pretty good head start then to be able to go in and do something like Healthy, Wealthy and Wise, which was Jackie McDonald, Ian Hewitson, Jim Brown, um, Peter Werrett, Talbot, my friend, Peter Werrett, Tonya Todman. And i got to say, amongst that lot, there's no stories to be told at all. So which part of the family were you? I would have been... I would have been... I would have been the young brother, I would have thought. <laughs> I would have thought that it would have been. Let me think about this. I hate to so think Ronnie what Peter Burns, where it was. Why not? I forgot <laughs> Ronnie Burns. I forgot Ronnie Burns. Uh, Ronnie Burns was there. So Ronnie and Jackie must have been mum and dad. Yeah. Lynn Talbot and I would have been the young brother and sister. Jim Brown would have been the wacky old uncle. Mm. Tonya, I don't know what Tonya was. Don't even, been don't artist, even begin to pretend you know what Peter Werrett was, please. No, no, no. Peter, lovely man, Peter. All good. No problems at all. Mo- motoring expert. Remember, talk on the ABC. Oh, yeah. Excellent. Well, that's your yeah. point, that this show created by Disney, who was obviously clearly a, a genius when it came to creating television programs, uh, people have looked at it and gone, well, we can grab that and we'll get all the advertising revenue on cars. We can grab that and we'll get all the advertising revenue on holidays. We'll grab that and we'll get all the cooking revenue. I mean, Disney clearly was very smart and the people who pulled it apart were even smarter. Well, and, and then think even today, you think about the website, think about holiday websites, think about auto, you know, car websites, think about you know, sort of cooking websites. So these are the very essences of life. It hasn't changed at all. You know, so it's, so if you think about chopping that up, you know, arts and crafts with uh, Sonia Sodman, uh, it's cars, it's cooking, it's holidays, 
and it's money and finance. So these things really go hand in glove. And so one of the things I started to learn about all of this, and really I learned it in these days, but to a certain extent later on, but especially when I went to nine and came back from London, and I recognised and understood that there was almost no subject in the world that you couldn't discuss if you were talking about finance. And the brilliance of that is if you want to talk sport, well, sport doesn't happen unless you've got money behind it, unless you've got, sub, uh, unless you've got sponsors, yep. unless you've got uh, you know your, your members paying, paying their dues. Media deals. You think about the ballet. Think, yeah, media deals. Think about, think about ballet, right? You can talk ballet. Think about the, the sponsorship that's required to have a, a ballet company tra- travel the world. So there's stories. Think about crime. Crime is all about money. It, it, it is always about money. There's no doubt because it is about the ability for one person to take something from another person. And so this is really one of the great, you know, sort of eye-openers for me was that there was no space after having gone into what was seen to be a very narrow field of reporting to end up realising and understanding that it was the broadest possible field of all because there was no subject that was off limits. Would I be right to suggest that Gav- the other thing Gavin Disney probably put in your mind was it's always an advantage if you can have some skin in the game, own a bit of the program itself because uh, clearly when you went to London, you-, you set that magazine up and you had real skin in the game. That's that's where you make real money if we want to talk money, right? Well, that's true. And, and, and you know, one of the things about people who – try to figure out how to make money in their lives. I mean, you can do it very slowly over a very long period of time, uh, and that is by being disciplined and by making certain that you earn more money than you spend and you don't lose your income, you just keep on going. The second way is by trying to turn that income that you've got into an asset, be that a property or a number of properties or a share portfolio or whatever. But the way in which you can make money and take greater risk, by the way, is by setting up your own business and backing yourself. Uh, and I think that for most people that I've met who have been highly successful in creating wealth, that's the way they've done it. Um, you know, they haven't done it slowly. They've done it more quickly. They might have done it over decades, but they've probably set themselves up relatively quickly. And that is by backing themselves. And it's either their sales skills or their technical skills, or whatever it might be. But, of course, to do that, you've got to be careful not to be fleeced along the way because so many are. You've got to be careful to recognise that you not only have great skills in some areas, but deficiencies in others. And so most of the entrepreneurs that I've ever met, you know, they've had to surround themselves with people who can make up their deficiencies, you know, be it in handling people or handling administration or whatever, whatever it is. But, but I understand that these people generally are very much driven, incredible hard workers, and they have a drive to try and make certain that that business does succeed. And they're also risk takers. Because in many cases, they're taking huge risks um, that potentially could see their business go under. They put their house on the line. Yeah, you make an excellent point. We're going to talk about some of those names in a moment. So 2003, you get seduced into coming back to Australia to become uh, the business and finance editor at the Nine Network. Big job offer. It's a, it's a, a major job. National, National Nine News, 60 Minutes, as I said, the Today Show. Wasn't that easy a transition, though, was it? You had to actually, when you got back, hide from the bloke you were replacing. Yeah, so this is, a, this is a bit of a story. So not only did I have to convince my wife, Tanya, who was, come on the journey with me, and I say, I say brilliantly, but let's be honest, she, she's, she's gone on the journey. She's had a great time along the way, but if she'd had her chance, I think right now, she'd still be in London. She wouldn't be back in Australia. She loved it. She 
probably came back a little unwillingly, it would be fair to say. Reluctantly, never I would say. Reluctantly, yes, that would be fair. And Sydney was never a place. It would be also right. But the truth was that Sydney was where media was based. And Sydney was where, if we were coming to Australia, I wanted to come back to Sydney rather than go back to Melbourne, where I'd come from. And the reason for it, I felt that if I'd gone back to Melbourne, I was almost returning to where I'd come from. I wanted to keep the journey sort of moving on and going forward. But when I arrived in Sydney, I, I rang. I, all I literally had was a piece of paper saying, right, you've got this job and this is what you're going to get paid and on you go. Um, and this is from John Alexander, who is the, the chairman of, uh, or the chief executive of Channel 9 at the time. Anyway, I didn't quite understand what I was walking into because what happened was as I walked through the car park on, on the very first day, Peter Meekin walked out the door. Peter Meekin was the legendary head of news and current affairs. And this is the whole episode of Who Killed Channel 9 that Gerald Stone wrote the book about. I know I was stuck right in the middle of this. And the reason for it was because John Alexander had previously hired Yana Fink without having told um, told Meekin that he was going to do so. And there was an agreement between the two that he wouldn't do this again. So he hires me and replaces Michael Pascoe as a long-standing finance editor at Channel 9 um, without telling Meekin he was doing so. So this causes enormous bad blood between the two. Um, and Meekin walked out the door with some fairly colourful language as well described by uh, Gerald Stone in his book. I think it was a 24-carat roll gold something anyway. so Yes, I remember exactly how that description went and so does Peter. Yes, that's right, something. Anyway, so so I walk into this place and um, not only was I told when I arrived the first three weeks that I should disappear and not be seen for those three weeks, and I'm sitting there saying, what? They said, well, we haven't finished up our business. The business they hadn't finished up was that they hadn't got rid of Pasco. Oh, no. And so I ended up, in a one-bedroom apartment above the Cremorne Hotel in Sydney, which if anybody knows the North Shore of Sydney, has the very famous nightclub Minsky's at the bottom of it, which was renowned for having very sticky carpets and a man who played requests on the piano. Yes. It was a very well-known, notorious, shall I say. Um, sort of. Uh, anyway, so I didn't frequent that terribly much because I was in literally a witness protection program in hiding, and eventually I came out and... When I turned up in the newsroom, of course, at Channel 9, um, I sort of discovered that, well, Pascal was much loved. And, of course, people were very upset that Pascal had gone and not very happy that I'd replaced him. But I totally understand all of this. But it wasn't my fault. I'd simply taken a job. So I had to put my head down. I knew none of the systems. I really hadn't worked in this full-time capacity in newsroom and television in my life. And you pretty much had to work it out and make it up on the run. But anyway... Um, there were enough people around the place with enough goodwill and, uh, to look after me and to try and make certain that I didn't fall over at the first hurdle. What do you think made John Alexander think about hiring you? Well, the reason for it was in London, I'd been doing a lot of stuff on um, Sky News and on Bloomberg and on the BBC. And so my sense of it was that they kept looking at, and I knew enough people here in Australia who sort of like, probably put the, the suggestion into his ear. Um, but the fact of the matter was, I think when they looked up in the mornings um, with their morning television there, I would be doing something on Sky or something on Bloomberg or something on the BBC. It would, you know, there would be bits and pieces. And there were things that 
you know, I kept doing it would turn up in Australia out of the UK from time to time. So I just think that maybe this was all a part of the reason for it. But as I said, it was, uh, it was pretty, well, it was quite difficult because at the time I also had, well, I think we built up to having 40 or 50 staff in the UK. So we set this up from nothing. Um, the business in the UK had 40 or 50 staff. It was pretty tough to actually walk away from that um, to come back to Australia. But I felt if I didn't come back to that stage, that I'd probably still be there today. And, and that would have really been my life, I guess. Um, would have been to have gone and worked for the BBC or to go and work for maybe the Financial Times, which had uh, come knocking on my door a couple of times as well. Not long after you got back, you mentioned John Alexander. who He moved on and was uh, replaced, I think, by the legendary Sam Chisholm. Tell me what it was like working for Sam Chisholm, who obviously is like a godfather of Australian TV. He was Kerry Packer's uh, general on the floor. What was it like working for Sam? Well, I saw Sam come back the second time, um, and Sam by this time, um, had uh, well-known health problems. He'd had a lung transplant. He clearly had uh, issues with his heart and so forth. Um, and Sam was undoubtedly, uh, or had as much energy as anybody in a relatively small body as I'd seen in my life. He, he was, he, he was a, he was a fireball. Anyway, yes. so Sam, Sam I got to say, was probably one of the great salespeople I've ever worked with. I've always liked to work with with, with really good salespeople because. You know, it's a very hard thing I've discovered to ask somebody for money, and and to ask them for a lot of money on a promise is, is a skill that I've got to say I'm not sure that I necessarily have it. You and I uh, both don't well have as, that skill. No, but there are others who are brilliant at it, and and Sam was probably one of the best. And I saw Sam one day win over. Oh, we were doing the news for Qantas, uh, and I sat there with the Qantas team and Sam and all the rest of that. And he basically walked in force of nature and basically signed up the deal before they even realised what had taken place. And I thought, wow, that was quite something. But there was another time, I must admit, that there was myself, John Lyons, who, of course, was uh, formerly the editor of the Sydney Morning Herald, went on had a celebrated career as the Middle East correspondent for, uh, for the Australian newspaper. And there was also Ben Hawke was there. And Ben was... Uh, the, one of the one of the one of the creators of uh, the Australian story was a great producer for sixty minutes and um, you know sort of so it was in fact the, the executive producer of the Seven Thirty Report at one stage. So the three of us get trotted up to Sam's office and we get dragged through the ring and we're doing the Sunday business program, a Sunday program at the time, and we get absolutely now a good spray from somebody where somebody's absolutely going at you flat out with every word you can imagine. I reckon it, norm- it feels like it lasts for five minutes, but it goes for perhaps 30 seconds, 45 seconds. This spray from Sam, it was, a, it was a huge performance. It didn't stop for, and I kid you not, half an hour. It just went. And every time you tried to raise a point, there'd be just Sam screaming at you. And in the middle of all of this, there's veins coming out of his head and out of his neck. And I literally go into another place because the, the, the abuse is just going over the top of me. We'd done something fairly simple like we'd allowed the Bulletin magazine in those days to have a house ad on the Sunday program because we'd done a swap. And to him, this was heresy, right? This was the worst thing we could have possibly done. Anyway, so he's given it to us in no uncertainty. So I, I literally have an out-of-body experience and I'm imagining Sam having fallen flat on his face Bed in front of me, and I'm thinking, oh, with the heart and the lungs and, oh, and, the, and the veins popping out. 
And I'm thinking, what am I going to do? Am I going to breathe into him? Or am I going to put the pillow on him to stop him from yelling at us? So it was very funny. But Sam, literally, two days later, would have walked past you and gone, hello, son, how's it going? No problems at all. And so it would have never happened. And you'd go, oh, Lordy. And this was what it was like, I think, in those days to have worked for the Packers and just some of the, some of the, the gigantic, you know, egos and businesses and personalities that, that were running those businesses at that time. You're probably one of the few people who's met and interviewed all of the big names in business. I mean, you go back to, to Kerry Packer, but you talk about Kerry, you talk about Frank Lowy, you talk about Dick Pratt, uh, Harry Triggerboff, John Simons. I mean, you've interviewed all of them. What is, what is it that makes, uh, and I know you can't have a common thread for all of those, they're very different personalities, but what is it that makes someone a, a, a super successful risk-taking businessman like all of those people I just mentioned? I think... When I, when I really identify them, when I look at Triggerboss and I look at Lowy and I look to a certain extent at Jerry Harvey, they're all quite different personalities and different people and like different things, no doubt about it. But there is that innate ability. Everything went really bad for them. If anything had gone really bad for them during their lives, but they were able to front up to adversity. And I mean, if you ever think about Harry Triggerboff, who was at one stage Australia's you know, richest man, the creator of Meriton Apartments, still going with, you know, again, that fierce personality um, well into his 80s. Great man. Um, now uh, 86, 87, I think he is. And you sit there and you go, that really, ultimately, he's got a, a sense of humour um, that is all about the risks that he's taking. He's happy taking those risks. Frank Lowy knew no boundaries. And if you think about the, the story of Frank Lowy and his uh, father disappearing at the train station, never to be seen again, taken away um, into a concentration camp and killed there. Um, and that loss of Frank Lowy, the fact that he had to you know, survive the European war, um, then to come back and to, to fight in Israel. Um, again, this is a man who just almost knew no boundaries. And yet you see these people when they're with family and so forth, and they are—they do remember, you know, just how important it is to keep those families close because they have lost. And, and I just think this is all a part of, you know, what made great entrepreneurs absolutely brilliant. But then you have a look at someone like Jerry Harvey, and Jerry Harvey, you know, partly his success is driven out of, you know, sort of almost like a, a, a hatred for Alan Bond, and the reason was that Bond had taken over. Um, Walton's, which uh, was in bed with Norman Ross. They'd taken over Norman Ross, which was Jerry Harvey. Um, and so uh, it was one of these points whereby Jerry decided to get back at Bondi by creating Harvey Norman um, and really trying to uh, uh, go out there and, and show Alan Bond that he was a better retailer than him. And it was, you know, almost in many ways just purely trying to get back at Alan Bond for what he saw as being a, a terrible misjustice in taking over his business and throwing him out of it. I, I think that was the key. So the motivation is is different in every case, but it's about that fire in the belly, the fire in the belly to succeed and to take risks and to recognise in many cases that the worst possible thing that could take place, in other words, that you fail, well, that probably was not as bad as what your potential outcome could have been had you ended up in the Second World War 
And this is the reason why so many migrants, as I say, I believe succeed in Australia because the circumstances from where they've come or what they've experienced, you know, to, as compared with, you know, winning or losing a business in Australia is almost secondary in many ways. And that's the reason why they can take and also absorb the risks that they're, uh, they're, they're, they're taking on in business. I guess they're all visionaries too. I mean, you don't get that successful if you're not. I mean, look at Kerry Packer had a vision for turning cricket into a profitable sport and, and was, was so determined to do it, he did it. Frank Lowy obviously had one big idea in his life and that was if you build big shopping centres and you have lots of shops in there, they'll all have to pay your rent, you'll make a lot of money. I mean, Harry Triggerboff, I mean, was the, you know, saw before any of us saw how many people were going to be living in multi-storey apartments. I mean, they all have one big, really successful idea and then prosecute it, right? But, but true, but then you think about the next stage is you've got to convince somebody else your banker, to give you the money. That, that dream is real, to give you the money, to back your idea. And you've then got to be able to take on the risk of the massive debt that you've just taken on and the obligation to go and repay it and to, to scrimp and save and make certain that it all happens. You've got, still got to have the wherewithal to take that risk on uh, and know that if this project fails, that you'll fail as well. And I mean, it's interesting, we talked about Alan Bond a little earlier because Harry Triggerboff, one of the great turning points in his life, was when he went bought World Square, which is the giant site in the middle of Sydney. The Bond wanted to create the tallest building in Australia right at World Square. He went broke. And effectively, that site in the middle of, you know, almost Chinatown in Sydney laid empty for, for several years during the recession uh, of the early 1990s. Eventually, um, Harry went and bought that site and put a building on top of it, which he decided um, to, to turn into apartments and sell the apartments off. Well, because it was so bad, the property market, he couldn't sell the apartments. And so he had to think on his feet. And so as a result, Harry goes out there and creates a whole lot of apartments that turn into service apartments. Um, and so these are really the first you know, service apartments on any organised sort of basis in, in Sydney and in Australia. And from that, he now is the largest operator of hotel rooms, which are really these service apartments, in the country, simply because he had to think on his feet to find a way to use those apartments to generate an income so that he didn't go broke. Uh, and, and, you know, it is that, that ability to think on your feet quickly, to solve a problem quickly, and to have others go with you, that really is the key to entrepreneurialism. Look, our chat, I think what it's shown is that you're right, the business world tosses up so many fascinating stories. Given some of the research I did, I, I note that your lo- private life is very private and uh, I respect that as being a very good friend of yours, but I just wanted to give you the chance to pay some credit to the incredible medical team that looked after your lovely son, Mitchell, because you and Tanya had a very premature baby. How, how tough was that to go through? It was pretty hard because I was editing BRW at the time and you're at the hospital every day and he was in hospital for jingos for the best part of seven months, I guess it was. So, yeah, it's, it's pretty hard and it's hard not to get emotional about that because it's a roller coaster ride that your, your family goes upon. And it's funny my wife had to you know, carry that burden um, for, for a long time. But to his absolute credit, um, you know, he's now six foot three. Uh, he's a, a charming young man that if you met him, you would never know of the, uh, of the hardships that he had to actually get a start in life. And what's difficult about that also is that so many other families and people going through the same struggles at the same time as we were. And it was very hard because 
some kids didn't make it. It was very sad to go in there and find that children have died along the way. And, and you, you wonder uh, whether you might have been next. And that was pretty hard to actually work out because even then you had to look at, and in our case, Tanya and I, to, to whether you were going to survive that. And, you know, we worked out that we were strong and we'd be able to survive that. But thankfully, from our point of view, you know, we got an amazing result in, in a young man who, you know, we're so proud of and who's such a, such a great kid. And, you know, you just recognise from all of that, you take one day at a time, you take every day as a, an absolute, you know, an absolute blessing. You've got to make every day count um, because, you know, really... Uh, life is short. You don't, you know, you'd love to have as many adventures as you possibly can. Um, and to make certain that you just, you know, stay as happy as you possibly can right the way through. And I think that's something I've, I've tried to take through my life as well. And that's something that you also probably learn out of, out of some of those tougher times like that. A great message. Ross Greenwood, thanks for joining us on the record. Always good to chat, Steve. We'll chat very shortly, by the way, on some golf course nearby today. Ross Greenwood, a life observing business on this episode of On the Record.